1: Hello everybody and welcome to Grey History, episode 25, The Road to War. In the last episode we met the new Legislative Assembly, and in particular the influential group of radical Jacobin deputies that came to become known as the Girondins. Referred to as the Brousseauans at this point in time, Jacques Brousseau and his associates pursued an aggressive campaign against the enemies of the revolution particularly the émigrés and non-constitutional priests. With the king vetoing much of the legislation directed against these counter-revolutionaries, the Brassoans turned to a solution which would resolve all of the nation's numerous troubles. That solution was war. Today's episode will explore just how France began its journey to unleashing decades of continental conflict. To examine the nation's road to war, we're going to cover a hell of a lot of ground in what will be the longest episode to date. Firstly, we'll discuss how European governments across the continent responded to the initial events of the French Revolution, and then we'll dive deep into Austria's specific response to the flight to Varennes. That will set us up to examine the cause for war within France, and the numerous justifications used used to pursue a policy of a revolutionary crusade. Having covered the case for conflict, we'll explore the response of both the court and the Fionts, before we wrap up by diving into some contentious historical debates surrounding the true motivations for war. Because one's justification for war, and one's motivation for war, can often be two very different things. But before we get into it, there are a couple of things I want to say. Firstly, I do want to apologise for being so late in the release of this episode. I've had an eventful few weeks, including a stint in hotel quarantine, and considering my room was right next door to a highway, I figured no one wanted an 18th century history podcast with 20th century sound effects. So, apologies for the delay, and rest assured we're back on track for what is currently a monthly release schedule. Secondly, I want to shout out a big thank you to everyone who has signed up to support the show via Patreon. Since the last episode, 12 people have signed up. So a big thank you to Nathaniel, William, Jeremy, Clay, Kim, Faith, Harris, Jane, Rohan and Emily and her husband. An extra special thank you to the extra generous champions of the people, Cameron and Jeffrey. All of your support is very much appreciated as I continue my journey from amateur history podcaster to what will hopefully one day be professional history podcaster. And I can't adequately describe just the size of the smile that appears on my face when I see your messages of support and encouragement. As we've discussed in the past, I have dreams of a second, third, even tenth season of Grey History. And the best way to help the cause is by telling people about the show and supporting the podcast on Patreon. Apple podcast listeners' written reviews are also much appreciated. And a thank you to C. Peters, who left a great one the other week. To help the cause of Grey History and its future seasons, I really can't stress enough just how much your vocal support helps the podcast. If everyone listening to episode 25 recommended the show to just five people, and then those new listeners did the same when they hit this episode, that in just three cycles of recommendations, we would be able to enjoy grey history on a near weekly basis. That's more French Revolution, but that's also more Napoleon, more Vietnam War, more British Raj, more Cold War, more Caribbean piracy, more Reformation, more of whatever history we collectively decide for future seasons. So, as we hit episode 25, I do humbly ask that if you're enjoying the show, which I presume you are after 25 episodes, please do tell someone about it. Colleagues, friends, family, your local teacher or student, anyone you think who might enjoy a podcast that explores the grey. By spreading the word and by supporting the show on Patreon, you can help the cause immensely. Speaking of causes it's time to indulge in one of a grander scale to our own. The cause of continental liberation. So, having covered everything we need to cover, let us begin. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 25, The Road to War. When the Bastille fell on the 14th of July 1789... Celebrations ensued across Europe. It is reported that Englishmen gave exuberant speeches, that Russians hugged one another, and that, uncharacteristically, Germans wept with joy. A year later, when the massive Festival of the Federation was celebrated in Paris, festivities took place not only in France, but in cities across the continent as well. These celebrations reflected the fact that in various European nations, the French Revolution was initially greeted with much enthusiasm, particularly amongst the liberal nobility and the politically active sections of the middle class. Universities, societies, clubs and publications buzzed with the possibilities of what could be, both in France and at home. Yet, as the Revolution wore on, much of this enthusiasm waned. While many Europeans welcomed reforms to the old regime, many were also concerned by the increasingly radical policies adopted by its replacement. The National Assembly had, in effect, declared war on the fundamental pillars of Bourbon France. The Catholic Church had been neutered and plundered. The nobility had been abolished and suppressed. The king, despite being crowned by the will of God, had been forced from Versailles to Paris and deprived of his liberties and prerogatives. Having assaulted the preeminency of the Catholic Church, having abolished the aristocracy, having castrated the Bourbon monarchy, many European sovereigns and their aristocratic brethren saw in France not a new age of enlightened rule, but a dangerous and chaotic regime that could inspire unwelcome anarchy. From the outside looking in, royal courts saw an assembly which appeared to be determined Not to reform France, but to redefine it. Guided not by tradition nor religion, but by flawed and unproven philosophy. Consequently, the revolutionaries had declared war, not only on the fundamental pillars of French monarchy, but on the fundamental pillars of European society. The events of 1789 had unleashed a conflict of ideas. On one side stood democracy, philosophy, and republicanism. On the other stood monarchy, aristocracy, and religion. The latter would defend the sovereignty of the church and the state, while the former would contend that it lied with the people alone. As historian Jonathan Israel puts it, A vast European war over the revolution's principles, claims, and actions was thus always a probability before it actually commenced. Initially, this battle of ideas remained metaphorical. In response to the revolution's dangers, sovereigns around the continent cracked down on dissent, reversed reform, and forcefully reintroduced censorship. In Spain, for example, letters and goods from France were opened in search for revolutionary materials, while Sardinia and Bavaria past measures targeting the Freemasons and the Illuminati, respectively. Two organisations suspected of revolutionary subversion. And yes, the Illuminati were a real thing. Just don't ask too many questions, because if you do, they'll... I digress. Some smaller states did remain liberally inclined... But often they were soon pressured to conform to the reactionary tide. Brunswick Wolfenbottle, for example, stalled the introduction of stricter censorship measures. But eventually the German principality succumbed to the wishes of its neighbors. The risks French propaganda presented were merely too great to ignore. Yet, for all the problems that the new France created, initially, the monarchs of Europe had other concerns at the forefront of their minds. During the early years of the revolution, Europe was preoccupied with a multitude of conflicts. In fact, the word multitude might not go far enough. In 1790, Austria was facing significant unrest in Hungary, while the Austrian Netherlands had undergone a revolution and unilaterally established the United States of Belgium. On the other side of the continent, Sweden and Russia were at war until August 1790, while Austria and Russia were fighting the Turks until mid 1791 and early 1792, respectively. If that wasn't enough, a dispute between Spain and Britain on Vancouver Island on the west coast of modern day Canada almost triggered hostilities in May 1790 between those two powers. Of course, I can't neglect to mention that nearly every major European state got dragged into a continent-wide conflict in the early 1790s, as seemingly everyone cared about checking Russian expansion in Poland. In short, while the revolution possessed threats to the various European monarchies, the happenings in Paris did not dominate the continent's foreign policy agenda in the initial years of the revolution. With no shortage of active or likely conflicts, the monarchs of Europe were quite preoccupied with their own affairs, and thus the predicament of the French monarch was, well, his own problem to solve. Consequently, secret letters from Louis and Marie Antoinette asking for assistance from neighbouring states went largely ignored. Instead, those states cracked down on internal dissent, while they focused on their own problems. For some time the revolution in France was predominantly an afterthought, that is, until the summer of seventeen ninety one, when the battle of ideas suddenly threatened to become a battle of steel. The new dangers that the French revolution possessed to European sovereigns were made blatantly clear by the infamous flight to Varennes. Louis's desperate attempt to escape his own capital shocked the courts of Europe. The Prussian king, Frederick William the Second exclaimed upon hearing the news of Louis' ordeal, What a horrible example! A shocking event it most certainly was. To appreciate the significance of this event, one must remember that the sovereigns of Europe reigned on the premise of their divine right to rule on the unquestionable belief that God himself had ordained the crowns that sat upon their heads. Even the monarchs of nations, which had long been rivals of France, must therefore have shuddered at the prospect of Louis' position as an imprisoned king. The French people may have neutered the power of the French monarchy, but in doing so they had undermined the power of all monarchies. As Lafayette himself put it, in the aftermath of the flight to Varennes, France could expose the subjects of Europe to the contagious example of a dethroned king. With the events in France now threatening their own authority, European monarchs did start to engage with the revolution far more proactively. Louis's predicament was finally becoming a common problem to solve. However, despite the growing hostility amongst royal courts to the French Revolution, opinions on how to tackle the problem were far from united. The Russian Empress, Catherine the Great, made her position clear. To destroy French anarchy is to prepare one's immortal glory. Likewise, the Swedish king, Gustav III, shared these sentiments, going as far as deploying troops to modern day Germany to assist with any military intervention. Yet, for all these grandiose statements and actions, in reality they accounted for very little. One doesn't have to be a human atlas to know that the opinions of the Russians and the Swedes were not particularly relevant when it came to the affairs of France. Stockholm and St. Petersburg were a long way away from Paris, and perhaps this lack of locality allowed them to beat the drums of war, knowing full well they wouldn't have to pay for said drums. Furthermore, between Russia and France was the far more important territory of Poland, which had been partitioned once in 1772 between Prussia, Russia and Austria. The first partition had left a weakened Polish kingdom as a protectorate of Russia. But if you know anything about Polish history, you would know that the existence of a Polish state means that there's more partitioning to be done. The Russian empress might have made noises about French radicals, but in reality, it was Polish patriots that Catherine would prioritize for destruction. Of far more importance for the future of the new revolutionary regime were the opinions of European leaders closer to home. In particular, the leaders of Prussia, Austria and Britain. Britain, a historic rival of France, had seen increasing public hostility towards the revolution. Although the British public originally welcomed the transformation across the Channel, by the second anniversary of the storming of the Bastille, the British public had embraced a stance of loyalism, preaching the virtues of king and country. Such a stance was welcomed by the British elites, who saw in the revolution's ideology a threat not only to their control over Parliament, but also their control over Ireland. Yet, despite this hostility from both the British public and the British government, war was certainly not something Prime Minister William Pitt wanted to entertain. For as long as possible... Britain was resolute on pursuing a policy of official neutrality. If King Louis wanted help from foreign powers, it would not come from across the channel.
2: Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Grainger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
3: Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a Ph.D. in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress, Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire, enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story.
1: The attitude of the Prussian king, Frederick William II, was entirely different. Indoctrinated in the thinking of Prussian militarism, Frederick hoped to enlarge the Prussian state by successful military conquests. Those conquests, however, were far more likely to occur in the East than they were in the West. The biggest prize on the board was, you guessed it, Poland. And thus, the East was where his priorities lay. Despite this, the possibility of Prussian intervention was certainly real enough. And the emigres continually tried to enlist the support of the Prussian king in their counter revolutionary escapades. The actions of Berlin, however, were ultimately irrelevant without factoring in Vienna. Any military response to the threat of the revolution, any action to save the embattled royal family, would have to be led by Emperor Leopold II. Not only was Leopold related to the French sovereigns, his sister being Queen Marie Antoinette, but as the Holy Roman Emperor, Leopold's domains bordered France. Any intervention from a coalition force would invade through imperial territory, and thus it was his territories that would suffer should conflict be unsuccessful. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, how the hell does some Austrian guy earn the pretentious and seemingly nonsensical title of the Holy Roman Emperor well it is probably an appropriate time to step back from our french narrative and briefly indulge in some german history the holy roman empire lasted from 800 AD to 1806 and was a highly decentralized state centered on germanic europe on the eve of the french revolution its territories roughly included modern day germany austria Switzerland, Upper Italy and Croatia, most of the Czech Republic, the western part of Poland, and throw in Belgium for good measure. Now, the key thing to understand about the Holy Roman Empire is that it wasn't really an empire. In fact, Voltaire's famous quip was that the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy, nor Roman, nor an empire. The HRE was a collection of highly autonomous political entities, ranging from duchies to principalities to archbishoprics to just normal bishoprics to counties to landgraviates to margraviates. Of course, I can't forget to mention the imperial free cities, the imperial abbeys, the imperial knights and the imperial villages. At its height, the empire included literally hundreds of these different political entities, earning the empire the nickname of Flickentippisch, which is German for patchwork carpet. By the eve of the French Revolution, Prussia and Austria dominated key parts of the empire, but glancing at Western Germany in particular would make you wonder who glued a pile of confetti to the map. If you're struggling to visualise that glitter bomb along the Rhine, I've placed some maps of the empire in the episode's show notes. What this means for us is that while Leopold II was emperor, his direct control over the very fragmented components of the empire was severely limited. A point underscored by the fact that Prussia and Austria were both members of the Holy Roman Empire, and yet the two had gone to war several times in the 18th century. Veering back to our French narrative, in 1791, the Holy Roman Empire encompassed Belgium and a range of small political entities along the Rhine River. These territories not only bordered France, but in some cases had historic rights and prerogatives in France as well. Thus, the adjacent nature of imperial territory, combined with the emperor's family ties to the French monarchs, made the actions of Leopold pivotal to any European military intervention. Now, as already alluded to, and as discussed in episode 21, prior to the flight to Varennes, Leopold had no shortage of reasons not to invade France. Firstly, Austria was already at war with the Turks, and fearful of Russian and Prussian aggression in Poland. Secondly, when Leopold took the throne in 1790... The empire was experiencing significant unrest, especially in Hungary and the Low Countries. Until the end of 1790, the Austrian Netherlands was in open revolt, as the self-proclaimed United States of Belgium. With internal unrest ever present thanks to the provocative reign of his predecessor, Joseph II, the last thing the new emperor needed was yet another foreign conflict, in addition to the one he already had in the Balkans, and the one he potentially had in Poland. Thirdly, a weakened France wasn't necessarily a bad thing for Leopold. Austria's French ally had, for a much greater period of time, been a French foe. The two European powers had long been historic rivals, and the unpopular alliance was far from secure. With the possibility of a revolutionary France no longer honouring the alliance of 1756, Leopold wasn't particularly devastated at the prospect of a weakened rival. Putting aside all these practical reasons Leopold had not to engage in counter revolutionary war, perhaps the most important was the Emperor's personality, a personality which was completely unsuited for an ideological crusade. As historian George Lefevre puts it, Leopold was the least warlike of. European sovereign. Unlike many of his contemporaries, he did not crave military glory, and much preferred to resolve issues diplomatically. If he wanted to find a ruler with a personality designed to keep the peace, Leopold is a pretty good example. Furthermore, as the Duke of Tuscany, Leopold had in fact ruled as an enlightened ruler, and had sought to implement many of the same controversial reforms that the French were now attempting. Leopold had attempted to introduce a constitution and to nationalise church property for the benefit of the state. Thus, not only was Leopold's personality wholly unsuited for revolutionary war, but so were his rather liberal political inclinations. Now, it is argued by some historians that Leopold's apparent apathy to the predicament of his sister has been overstated. But nonetheless, whatever plight the Queen found herself in, prior to the summer of 1791, Leopold was in no rush to rescue her with military force. This stance of apathy, however, briefly changed after the flight to Varennes. The event shocked the courts of Europe and with the French monarchs confirmed as Parisian prisoners, Leopold came under immense pressure to act. As the French debated the future of both the king and the monarchy, the emperor released the Padua Circular on the 6th of July, just two weeks after Louis' failed escape. In it, Leopold made clear that Austria only recognised laws which Louis accepted voluntarily. Furthermore, he demanded that the king be restored his personal liberty immediately, and warned that any harm against the monarch would be responded to with force. The Padua Circular, however, was merely the appetiser for a much more significant declaration which threatened the revolutionaries of France. Throughout July and August, a reproachment occurred between Austria and its historic rival Prussia. After a series of negotiations and diplomatic initiatives, in late August, Emperor Leopold II met in person with the Prussian king, Frederick William II. With the Austrians having concluded peace with the Turks at the start of August, the agenda for the two Germanic powers was a relatively simple one. France What followed from their meeting in Saxony was the Declaration of Pilnitz a relatively simple document with complex ramifications. In the declaration, the two sovereigns made it clear that they expected Louis to be given the freedom and prerogatives required to establish and consolidate a monarchical form of government. The reason why they specified a monarchical form of government was of course due to the fact that Paris had recently seen significant Republican agitation, at least Until the Champ de Mars massacre of mid July. If the revolutionaries failed to comply with this demand, then the document called upon all the sovereigns of Europe to act as one, using whatever force was required to secure the French monarchy. However, the key word here was all. Specifically, the document stated then and in that case. Meaning that the cooperation and involvement of all European sovereigns was a condition for military intervention. Leopold II knew that all European powers would never act in unison, because the British were adamant that they would maintain their stance of neutrality. In other words, Leopold was threatening war knowing full well it would never occur. The Emperor himself emphasized the criticality of the condition. When he stated that, then and in that case are for me the law and the prophets. By threatening a war he had no intention of pursuing, Leopold was trying to frighten the French into submission. He hoped to empower the Fionn deputies of the National Assembly to beat back the Republican radicals, to reform and implement the Constitution of 1791 and thus to resolve the diplomatic tensions without resorting to military intervention. Leopold's Chancellor, Kalnitz, stated as such, noting that it would be foolish to pursue the invasion demanded by the emigres if peace could be established through diplomacy. Historian Simon Sharma writes, When Leopold met King Frederick William at the Spa of Pilnitz in Saxony at the end of August, they were joined by Artois, who arrived uninvited. But the common declaration that emerged was as much an expression of the two sovereigns' resistance to calls for a war of intervention as of their concern for the personal safety of the royal family. The text of the Pilnitz Declaration stated that the fate of the French monarchy was of common interest to the powers and urged the restoration of its full liberty. Should warnings against harming the king and queen go unheeded, it was implied common action might have to be concerted. That the statement was meant as prophylactic rather than aggressive was plainly indicated by Leopold's emphasis on the indispensability of the collective agreement of all major powers before any action could be contemplated. Since it was known at the time that there was no question of British agreement to any such plan, the declaration could, at the same time, sound honourably firm, without committing Austria to anything at all. And without Austria, Prussia was very unlikely to act on its own. All the evidence indicates that the bellicose tone of the statement was meant to help the Fionnes within France to stabilise the position of the monarchy and to use the threat of a European war against the Republicans. Sharma is by no means alone in his interpretation of events. Historians across the political spectrum note that Leopold did not want war, even after the flight to Varennes. He would act if he must, but he would prefer not to. Count Fersen, the Swedish noble who had helped the royal family escape the Tuileries Palace in June, lamented as such. In a letter to the King of Sweden, Fersen stated plainly, Everything confirms me in the view that the Viennese cabinet intends to do nothing. Although the declaration of Pilnitz may have amounted to little more than a hollow threat, the document did have two significant ramifications. The first of these was that subsequent events in France convinced Leopold his tactic of intimidation had worked. The publication of the declaration in late August was followed by the successful adoption of the constitution just two weeks later. Furthermore, after Leopold issued the Padua Circular on the 6th of July, the assembly had pardoned King Louis within a fortnight, and subsequently suppressed republicanism with the introduction of the Tricolour terror. With the king on his throne and blood in the streets, Leopold was convinced that his mere threats of intervention had forced the revolutionaries to maintain Louis's crown and crack down on the radical left. What this meant was that in the future, Leopold would resort once more to threatening declarations in order to coerce the French. And, as we shall see in the next episode, this policy of threats and ultimatums was fundamentally misguided. The second key ramification of the Declaration of Pillnitz was its reception amongst the French. To a proportion of the new deputies of the Legislative Assembly, which assembled just five weeks after the Declaration, the document was outrageous, provocative and proof that foreign forces were actively conspiring against the revolution. Either failing to see or choosing to ignore the language which explicitly required all foreign powers to act in unison, key revolutionary figures interpreted the Declaration of Pilnitz as akin to a declaration of outright war. Consequently, the Declaration was used to energise the pro-war movement within France. Although Leopold had meant to scare the revolutionaries into submission, the aggressive, hostile, threatening Declaration of Pillnitz had instead given Jacques Brousseau and his followers the tangible proof they needed to help justify their policy of revolutionary war. With the Legislative Assembly gathering on the 1st of October 1791, Brousseau and his allies wasted no time in pursuing their policy of peace through war. To the Prosoans, it was clear that the perils which threatened the new regime were the work of foreign plots and internal conspiracies. The menace of the émigrés, the subversion of the priests, the unrest of the provinces, the scarcity of food, the inflation of the assignat all of these issues were the work of plots and conspiracies. And all of these issues would be resolved through war. Conflict would allow the French to confront external foes and expose internal enemies. And thus, once identified and engaged, the revolution could purge France of the vices of despotism. Originally, the calls for war were targeted against the German princes of the Rhineland. The princes, such as the Elector of Trier and the Elector of Mainz were harbouring the French émigrés which so terrified the Parisian revolutionaries. From the German city of Koblenz, the émigrés were accused, rightly, of conspiring with foreign powers to topple the new order and restore the old regime. As the émigré the Marshal de Brogui stated, I know the road to Paris. I'll guide the foreign armies thither." And not one stone of that proud capital shall be left upon another. Considering the Marshal de Broglie was a former minister for war, and considering that his son was still serving in the French armed forces, one can see why such threats so frightened revolutionaries who were already convinced of foreign plots and traitors within. While the presence of these emigre camps instilled fear that was perhaps disproportionate to the threat they actually possessed. At the time, many perceived the emigres as representing a sizable political and military threat to France. They were, after all, actively mobilising opinion against the revolution throughout the Holy Roman Empire. In fact, the emigres, led by both of the king's brothers, as well as the king's former ministers, were doing far more than just mobilising opinion. They had created a small army, and they were actively lobbying for additional military assistance from European monarchs. The Brasowans were determined to address this émigré threat, and in doing so, resolve the problems besetting the nation. If the German princes refused to disperse the kingdom's enemies, Then it was argued by the assembly's radicals that France had to respond with forceful measures. Because the Brousseauans attributed all of the nation's woes to the emigres and their supporters, such as the non constitutional priests which remained in France, the only way to resolve the numerous problems which beset the nation was to attack and destroy the emigres. In doing so, France would not only crush the visible threat but flush out the internal, hidden conspirators which had been undermining the revolution from within. From this mindset, it was logical to conclude that only through armed conflict could the nation permanently secure the tranquility of the kingdom. Only through prompt, vigorous and forceful measures could the nation prevent counter-revolutionary subversion and guarantee its future prosperity. Thus, so began the calls for war. Brousseau made it clear that establishing national harmony was as simple as eliminating the destabilising émigré menace. Do you wish at one blow to destroy the aristocracy, the refractory priests, the malcontents, then destroy Koblenz? The head of the nation will then be forced to reign in accordance with the constitution. Attempting to show that France was not the aggressor, Brousseau made it clear that the German princes must stop assisting the émigrés if they truly wanted to maintain the peace. We respect your peace and your constitution, Respect ours in return. Stop sheltering these malcontents. Stop associating yourselves with their sanguinary projects. Or, if you prefer to the friendship of a great nation your relations with a few brigands, then expect vengeance. The vengeance of the people is slow, but strikes surely. Backing the radical journalist from Paris in his calls for war was Maxim Isnar, a thirty six year old deputy from Var. As the king vetoed the Assembly's controversial laws targeting the emigres and refractory priests, the assembly's left became even more convinced that the only viable solution to the nation's troubles was conflict, seeking to rally both the Jacobin Club and the Legislative Assembly now made it clear that weapons, not words, were the best way to secure the future of the nation. The bravest are the best, and an excess of firmness is the safeguard of success. Interestingly, however, if the original calls for war in late 1791 were framed as a necessity for the nation's defence, then it didn't take long for a new casus belli to be found, one justifying war on the grounds of national honour. Perhaps surprisingly, for a revolution grounded in modern ideals, it was the values of the past which soon dominated the reasonings for war. Appealing to the nationalism which the French Revolution had so successfully fostered through the creation of new ceremonies and traditions, Brousseau and his allies called for war on the grounds of protecting the nation's honour. The Declaration of Pilnitz was just one of the many ways that the enemies of the nation had trampled on the kingdom's prestige and besmirched the kingdom's glory. The threats and demands made by the emperor and other European sovereigns were outrageous and could not simply be ignored. Brousseau told the assembly that the deputies must avenge your glory or condemn yourselves to eternal dishonour. Vernieu went further. Addressing the French people, the former lawyer from the Gironde stated that the representatives of Free France unshakably attached to the constitution will be buried beneath the ruins of their own temple rather than propose to you a capitulation unworthy of them and of you. As an aside, I can't help but smile at the fact that as the Brasowans trumpeted their calls for war, they did so by appealing to the traditional ideals of honour and glory. Ideals often associated with the very monarchies and empires which these Jacobin republicans loathed and despised. It is with some irony that as the war party within the Jacobin club sought to unleash a revolutionary struggle, they pursued their cause with appeals that were the very opposite of revolutionary. Even the most ancient histories focus on and often idolise the ideals of honour and glory. Perhaps this just goes to show the innate allure that these notions have to our emotive and proud minds. Perhaps Falstaff was wrong, and honour is more than just a word. Anyway, as per usual, I have digressed.
0: Hi, I'm Michael Troy, host of the American Revolution Podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the Democratic Republic that we enjoy today. The American Revolution Podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, starting with the events leading up to the war, including a look at the French and Indian War and pre war disputes. We then go through the war itself and eventually reach the founding of a new nation based on principles of democratic government. Along the way, there are lots of great stories of both selfishness and sacrifice, some unbelievable human achievements, and some all too familiar examples of greed, self dealing, and betrayal. Please subscribe for free to the American Revolution Podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution Podcast.
4: Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Livesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in nineteen thirty-nine, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just twenty years. You can find History of the Second World War
1: on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. As seventeen ninety one came to an end, and as seventeen ninety two commenced, the Brasoans continued to sound the drums of war. In doing so, a new Third justification for conflict emerged from the pro-war camp. Combining the modern republican ideals of liberty and universal rights with the traditional imperial notions of conquest and territorial expansion, the war party soon found themselves advocating for a revolutionary crusade against the despotic tyrants of Europe. But... In order to understand just how the deputies came to adopt this position, we must once again turn our attention back to how European rulers reacted to the revolution throughout 1789 to 1792. As the ruling elite reintroduced censorship and restricted civil liberties, many governments also repealed some of the popular reforms of the last couple decades the abandonment or reversal of many hard-won reforms infuriated advocates of the Enlightenment and the democratic, egalitarian and libertarian principles it embodied. As a result, while the excesses of the French Revolution pushed some foreigners towards their national governments, the excesses of these counter-revolutionary measures pushed others towards the international revolutionary opposition. Students, journalists and clubbers, who perhaps once identified themselves as moderates, swung behind the enlightened principles of revolutionary France. Some of these new revolutionaries remained in their home territories, determined to preach the merits of a general revolution and lay the groundwork for universal liberty. Others, however, moved to Paris, established links with their like-minded brothers, and began to push for French liberation. These newly formed foreign clubs went as far as creating armed battalions to assist their French brothers in the proposed crusade for universal liberty. The presence of these clubs lent credibility to Brousseau's claims that the citizens of the Holy Roman Empire were ready to rise up Against the tyrants which occupied the thrones of Central Europe. Failed revolutions had already occurred in Liege, Belgium, and Geneva, while the Rhineland and Zurich were evidently ready to explode. Just as the French people had toppled the old regime, the peoples of Europe were ready to topple their own illegitimate and oppressive governments. Accordingly, the revolutionaries convinced themselves that their enemies would be unable to sustain a war in the face of such internal unrest. Uprisings, revolts, mutinies and defections would cripple Austria, Prussia and any other enemy of the revolution. Or so the theory went. To borrow a line from a future pan-European conflict, the war would be over by Christmas, so to speak. As foreigners preached to the Jacobin Club that a general revolution was ready to occur, the Brousseauans leapt on this idea as yet another justification for their war policy. Having denounced the rulers of Europe as despotic and therefore illegitimate, Brousseau on the 31st of December claimed that the time has come for a new crusade. A crusade. For universal freedom. A week prior, Goder had heralded the call for such a crusade, a struggle that would liberate the enslaved peoples of feudal Europe. If the revolution has already marked seventeen eighty nine as the first year of French liberty, the date of the first of January, seventeen ninety two will mark this year as the first year of universal liberty. In calling for their new armed crusade against the tyrants of Europe, the Brasoans built upon the traditional notions of honour, glory and conquest as they justified their warmongering. Interweaving Enlightenment ideas into these very familiar principles, The expansion of French territory became the expansion of human liberty. The conquest of French enemies became the liberation of European brothers. The destruction of rival ideologies became the establishment of enlightened, egalitarian and humane societies. Perhaps by design, such calls appealed to both the hearts of idealists and the minds of pragmatists, for the distinction between conquest and liberation was murky, to say the least. Before we discover what came of all these calls for war, the political writer and contemporary Benjamin Constant had a rather interesting observation that I think is worth noting. Constant wrote The French Revolution saw the invention of a pretext for war unknown until then, that of rescuing people from the yoke of their governments, supposedly illegitimate and tyrannical. This pretext was used to bring death to men, some of whom lived quietly under institutions softened by time and custom, and others who had enjoyed for many centuries all the benefits of liberty. Obviously, Constant was unable to appreciate just how relevant his words would be in the 21st century. Such a pretext for war is still used today and was used countless times during the 20th century. Here, in justifying their calls for war by denouncing all tyrants as unquestionably illegitimate, the Brassoans have left an impact on global politics which is still relevant today. By the end of 1791, the War Party within the Jacobin Club was fully mobilised. Originally arguing that war was the only means in which France could secure peace and prosperity, the calls which demanded an aggressive defence of national interests had evolved into calls for an aggressive defence of national honour. Furthermore, the Brassoans had started to argue that what was really needed was not so much a limited campaign against the emigres and the German princes, but a universal crusade against all European despots. A crusade which would trigger a general revolution across the entire continent, one that would bring universal liberty to all. Now, perhaps these calls for war would have gone nowhere. Brousseau and his allies certainly did not hold a majority of votes in the National Chamber. Perhaps these calls for war might have receded or dwindled over time. Perhaps future developments, like the German princes dispersing the émigrés, might have dampened the nation's appetite for conflict and prevented the coming struggle. The Bressoans received support from two of the most unlikeliest of places, and it was this support which put France firmly on the road to war. The Fion Club was deeply divided over the issue of war. Representing the Peace Party amongst the moderates, Barneve firmly stood against any policy which rendered conflict a possibility. To Barnev, peace was the only way to stabilise the nation and cement the constitution of 1791. Yet, despite Barneve's opposition, another prominent member of the Fions did not share this point of view. That individual was the Marquis de Lafayette. Lafayette favoured war for two reasons. Firstly, he viewed conflict as presenting a Win win situation for his own personal politics. If the war was successful, the conflict would strengthen the position of both the Constitution and Louis XVI. Alternatively, if the war proved to be disastrous, then the mobilized French armies could be used against the radicals in Paris. Thus, provided the conflict was limited in scope, war could be used to strengthen the position of the king, irrelevant of how the conflict played out. Furthermore, not only did war benefit Lafayette's politics, but conflict benefited his career as well. 1791 had been a rough year for the general. In June, the royal family had escaped the Tuileries Palace, and Lafayette, as commander of the National Guard, understandably bore much of the blame. A month later, in July, Lafayette had led the Guard during the bloody Champ de Mars Massacre, permanently scarring his reputation as a hero of the people. Finally, in November, Lafayette had lost the Parisian mayoral election to Jérôme Pétion, a Republican Jacobin, further emphasising the general's fall from grace. War presented Lafayette with an opportunity to reverse this decline. The command of a victorious army would permit the general to restore his own honour while simultaneously proving his loyalty to the principles of the revolution. Thus, while other Fionns feared the prospect of military conflict, Lafayette and his supporters were ready to embrace it. Ultimately, however, the support of the general on the white horse was nothing compared to the support of the king. Louis XVI despite being the political adversary of the Brassoans, was also in favour of war. Louis and Maria Antoinette loathed their dual positions as French monarchs and Parisian prisoners. Having tried to escape the country in mid-June, the monarchs were still opposed to the revolution. Detesting the constitution and determined to restore their lost authority, the sovereigns felt that the only possible means to do this was through war. As the Queen herself wrote, Compromise has become impossible. Everything has been overturned by force, and force alone can repair the damage. Consequently, when Brousseau and the radicals of the Jacobin Club called for war against the crowns of Europe, the crowns of France spotted an opportunity louis Marie Antoinette believed that the ill-disciplined revolutionary armies would be crushed by the forces of Monarchical Europe, and thus any war would soon see them rescued by their Prussian and Austrian peers. Thus, the royals looked upon the Brassoan war policy with delight. The republican radicals were pursuing a policy which the court thought would save the royal family. On December the 14th, the Queen wrote to Count Ferson. The imbeciles, they don't see that this serves our purpose. On the same day, Louis wrote to Breteuil. Instead of civil, we will have political war, and things will be much better for it. France's physical and moral state renders it incapable of sustaining a semi-campaign. The French monarchs thus supported war, not because they thought France would win, but because they thought France would lose. With foreign foes victorious, the monarchs would be able to reassert their authority and rewind the clock on a revolution which had assaulted the king, the church and the nobility. Furthermore, in a similar vein of thought to Lafayette's reasoning, a successful war although unexpected would further empower the king resulting in a win-win situation for the court as a result the monarchs joined the calls for war yet if understanding the motivations of lafayette and the court for adopting a pro-war policy is relatively easy understanding the motivations of the brissowns is much harder it's here on the topic of just what drove the Brassoans to embrace such a nakedly aggressive, in many ways militant agenda that I want to spend the rest of this episode. The reason why I want to focus on the motivations of the Brassoans is because the historical debate surrounding the nation's road to war is absolutely full of grey history. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, geez, isn't it rather obvious? Rousseau and his allies in the Jacobin Club clearly wanted to crush the enemies of the new regime because they threatened the revolution's survival. Over time, these very understandable motivations of fear and self-preservation might have evolved thanks to the revolution's intense nationalism and the universal ideology that these deputies possessed. Bundled up together, one can explain their violent quest for peace and security. Well that would be the obvious motivation yes and that is certainly what some historians believe but fueling the ambiguity surrounding the historical debate is the disconnect that often exists between one's motivations for war and one's official justifications for war while the brassoans provided numerous justifications for their revolutionary crusade their true motivations for unleashing Continental conflict might have differed from the ones they proclaimed publicly. Hence the historical debate, and hence the grey history. So, if it's not the obvious, what did motivate Jacques Rousseau and his allies to adopt such a relentless campaign on behalf of revolutionary war? Leading one school of thought that is at times quite critical of the Brassoans was the French socialist Jean Jaurès. Jaurès accused the Brassoans of contriving a war for their own political gain and that it was this personal gain which motivated the Brassoans to adopt such a radical and aggressive posture. The premise of Jaurès's theory rests on the fact that the successful introduction of the constitution of 1791 was undermining the political power of the Brassoans. To phrase that another way, the establishment of constitutional monarchy was undermining the relevancy of both leading republicans and their associated ideology. Having failed to successfully acquire a French republic in the aftermath of the flight to Varennes, the republicans had seemingly missed their chance. While the people might still agitate against the king's vetoes or the distinction between active and passive citizens, the revolutionary momentum for a republic had evaporated. As a result, the Brassoans, according to Jarez, pursued a policy of war, suspecting the monarchs to be in league with the nation's enemies. War would allow Brousseau and his associates to discredit both the court and the constitution. By exposing the duplicity of the former, they would also expose the flaws of the latter. Having demonstrated that the monarchs were the enemies of the people, the Brousseauans would be able to leverage the resulting political turmoil in conjunction with the dangers presented by the war to re energize the lethargic masses and build support for a radical idea. The idea of a French Republic. In doing so, the Brousseauans would not only create their much-needed second chance to abolish the nation's constitutional monarchy, but they would simultaneously cement themselves as the new custodians of national power in the Republic that took its place. Thus, what motivated Brousseau and his entourage was no passion for liberty, but a passion for self-preservation and power. War was the means which would prevent Republican ideals from becoming irrelevant. War was the means which would prevent Republican deputies from becoming insignificant. And war was the means which would prevent the Constitution from becoming permanent. Historian Jean Jaurès writes, But, neither the worried pretensions of Brousseau, nor the oratory practices and the war rhetoric of Isnar, are enough to explain this so strange and great fact. How, in the autumn of 1791, does the revolution suddenly discover for itself a warrior soul? Here is, I believe, the decisive explanation. There was in the revolutionary consciousness at the end of 1791 and in 1792 an immense uneasiness, a beginning of doubt, and the war appeared obscurely like a roundabout means of solving problems that the revolution couldn't directly solve. She was struggling with terrible difficulty. He goes on to write, At the end of 1791... The democratic revolutionaries no longer believed in the revolutionary power of the people. And to tell the truth, the revolution had so often suppressed it. It had so often thwarted popular movements in their decisive efforts that it seemed natural to no longer count on momentum that had been so often repressed. The people on July 17 petitioned for the republic the revolution itself drowned its petition in blood the people were silent now and without a doubt no other burns than those of the external war could tear it away from its numbness thus it is not as so many historians have repeated the overflowing enthusiasm for liberty that gave rise to the war it is not from revolutionary exaltation on the contrary It emerged from a failure of the revolution. Testimonies frequently mention this breakdown, the discouragement of the Democrats, of the revolutionaries, in the very period of time when war speeches were blazing. Rejecting the idea that the war was popular, historian Jean Jaurès instead describes it as contrived and engineered. This was a policy designed to benefit the position of Republican deputies and their ideology. Unless the people stirred, unless a pretense could be found to enact radical reforms, the Republicans would be unable to exert influence over the new revolutionary order. It is for these reasons that Jerez claims that war was looked upon as a solution to solve the key problem which faced the Republicans that problem being the existence of the Constitution of 1791. The motivation for war was born not from an overwhelming enthusiasm for liberty, not from a desire to defend the nation against the tyrants of Europe, but rather from the revolution's failure to embrace republicanism. In order to rectify the constitutional defeats of 1791, The new constitution had to be changed, and the best means for changing it was war. As the journalist Malet Dupin stated, Brousseau's aim was to gain the opportunity at the first reverse, to accuse the king of collusion with the enemy and force him from the throne. Thus, war would discredit the king divide the Fayons, destroy the nation's enemies, and empower the Republican deputies of the Legislative Assembly. Agreeing with historian Jean Jaurès is historian Peter Kropotkin, who describes the conflict as the unnecessary work of politicians eager to enrich their own political fortunes. Was the war necessary? Jerez has put the question, and in the answering of it has placed before the reader's eyes many documents of that time, and the conclusion that must be drawn from these documents, and is deduced from them by Jerez himself, is the same as that which was defended by Marat and Robespierre. The war was not necessary. The foreign sovereigns no doubt feared the development of republican ideas in France but from that to their rushing to the help of Louis XVI was far enough. They were very far from eager about entering upon a war of that kind. It was the Girondins who wanted the war, because they saw in it the means of combating the royal power. Previewing the peace party within the Jacobin Club, which we will discuss next episode, Historian Peter Kropotkin, like historian Jean Jaurès, made it clear his conviction that the Brasovans desired war to constrain and eventually overcome their political adversaries. Yet, it must be noted that both Jaurès and Kropotkin were socialist historians. Kroputkin was in fact a supporter of anarcho-communism, and thus both men were ideologically predisposed to have a bone to pick with the Brassoans and the more elitist bourgeois republicanism that they came to represent. Despite this, many historians heralding from different ideological persuasions also adopt this position, lending credibility to the point of view that the Brassoans called for war, at least in part, not because they wished to defeat their foreign enemies, but because they wished to conquer their domestic rivals. This focus on the self-interested motivations of the Brassoans is dismissed by other historians. Historian Simon Sharma, for example, criticises what he sees as a tendency for historians to focus too much on Brassoan tactics to seize power from the Fionns. Indeed, another school of thought argues that the revolution's underlying principles rendered conflict with Europe almost inevitable from the start. And it was these principles that truly drove the aggressive foreign policy of the Brassoans. This perspective highlights the fact that the ideas advocated by the revolution, most notably that of universal liberty, were not French policies, but universal principles. Being universal in nature, these principles were not confined by lines on a map, not contained by borders or boundaries, and thus, When taken to their extreme, these ideas could not merely coexist with feudal Europe. As a result, the advocacy of these ideals, ideals which preached universal rights, naturally carried implicit support for interventionism. That is to say, such ideas lent themselves to be used as a casus belli against those who appeared to reject a universal and fundamental truth. Combine this with the fact that many in the pro-war camp had a long history of advocating for their ideas in a passionate manner, such as Brousseau in his historic advocacy for the abolishment of slavery. And, well, you have all the ingredients you need for a new crusade. A crusade of an enlightened people against the superstitious and reactionary infidel. Historian Bertha Gardiner writes, The outbreak of war might probably have been postponed, but it could hardly have been definitely averted. The doctrines of social and political equality announced by the French revolutionists were not, as were the arguments from law and precedent which had in the 17th century risen to the surface in the English long parliament, adapted merely to the country in which they arose. They were applicable to all the states of Western Europe. Hence, they acquired all the force of a religious propaganda. As in the 16th century, men were not asked whether they were Germans or Frenchmen, but whether they were Catholics or Protestants. So now, they would be first asked whether they were on the side of the revolutionary opinions or not. Before that great division of opinions all national antagonisms sank into comparative insignificance. The French revolutionist could not long avoid being carried away by a fierce desire to give effectual aid to his brother revolutionist abroad, and the German or English anti-revolutionist could not long keep his hands out of the fray, whilst the classes in France with whom he warmly sympathised were being borne down and oppressed. Many historians do not necessarily agree with the proposition that war was inevitable, but there is no shortage of historians that claim that the revolution's principles made conflict with feudal Europe likely from the outset. Support for a democratic and egalitarian society might have struggled to coexist with forms of constitutional monarchy, but it was at least possible. These principles was certainly incompatible with the absolute monarchy espoused by the émigrés and some European sovereigns. This incompatibility of the extremes, of democratic republicanism on one hand, and of authoritarian monarchism on the other, is argued by some to be the true catalyst for war. The ideological disposition of Brousseau and his allies pushed them to favour conflict with those that not only rejected their worldview, but supported an alternative, which the Brassoans perceived to be abhorrent and unjust. These Jacobin ideologues would justify war in whatever way was required, in order to purge humanity of the vices of despotism. Yet, while some historians emphasise the ambitions of the Brassoans, and others emphasise the crusading character of the revolution's ideas and their champions. These are just two of the many theories as to what truly motivated the Brassoans. Remember, this national debate did not occur in a political vacuum. Internal pressures, such as inflation, food scarcity, and violent unrest, certainly made their mark. Likewise, external factors such as foreign threats and émigré schemes did so too. Depending on which elements one emphasises, which primary sources one elevates, a variety of perspectives can be derived as to the true motivations for war. Professor Shamin Keatner, for example, takes a little of column A and a little of column B. Keatner notes that the Brassoan faction wanted war to solve their domestic problems and to consolidate their own power. However, she also notes that while the stated reason for war was to defend the liberty and independence of France, the revolution's principles naturally fostered what Keatner describes as an expansive definition of this task. As a result, defending France and transforming Europe soon became one and the same explaining how motivations to defend liberty and independence could evolve into demands for a universal crusade against the tyrants of Europe. These are just some of the many perspectives that explain the nation's road to war. Alternatives abound. Historian Sophie Varnich, for example, sees no glaring disconnect between the motivations of the Brassoans and their proclaimed justifications for war. Varnich emphasises the perceived necessity of defending the glory of France, and that a primary motivation for war can be attributable to the simple desire to avenge the nation's honour. Indeed, depending on the opinion one reads, the author rejects, accepts, emphasises or downplays the various theories we've already discussed, as well as some perspectives we haven't. The important thing to take away from this And what I'm trying to underline here is that there is no one or even multiple reasons that can be pointed to that clearly and decisively explain just what motivated the Jacobins to march on Vienna. Instead, the various potential possibilities remain bitterly disputed amongst historians. While many may crave a simple truth, in reality, that truth remains a mystery. A complete understanding of the motivations of Brousseau and his allies remains grey history. What does not remain ambiguous, however, are the consequences of Brousseau's war. Contrary to the claims of the Girondin leader, the conflict would be neither short nor easy. Instead, revolutionary war would wage across the continent for almost 25 years cultivating in the famous Battle of Waterloo. But while it would take almost a quarter of a century to defeat the French nation, it would take just months to defeat the French monarchy. The one thing that Brousseau did get right was that war would end the reign of kings. In fact, it would end it almost immediately. Thank you for listening to episode 25, The Road to War. There will be one episode extra available for this episode, exploring Barnev's own account as to why he passionately believed that peace was vital to the revolution's success. Next episode, we'll dive into a conflict which will consume the Jacobin Club and eventually the revolution itself, while we'll also explore the duplicity of the court the introduction of a new ministry and the declaration of war itself. A reminder that if you're enjoying Grey History, there are some things that you can do which will help the show immensely. If you think the show is worth a dollar, you can support the show via Patreon. There's a link in the show notes and on the website. Furthermore, telling people about the show is another great way that you can help ensure the future success of the show and guarantee more content. More frequently. As always, thank you for listening. Stay safe and have a great day.
2: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, dot or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.
4: The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast.